Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. What we've been looking at in this introduction to systematic theology is uh, just just the basics, the early foundations. So building a a basic understanding of of what systematic theology is, systematically organizing our understanding of what Scripture reveals to us about God, about man, about Christ, about the nature of what God is doing in the world, all of that. That's where we are. And we started, if you guys remember, we started with the first four or five weeks, just understanding the nature of Scripture. I made the argument in the very first session that if we are going to have true thoughts about God, we're going to have to learn what the Scripture says about God, not just come up with our own thoughts. Um, And don't get me wrong, philosophers have been doing that for a long time. Uh, and, And even a lot of religions have been doing that for a long time. But as Christians, our foundational axiom, right? This undeniable reality for us is that God is and God has spoken to us in His Word. So we spent weeks uh, discussing the Scriptures, the nature of Scripture. And then we turned to the nature of God. We we went from um, bibliology to theology proper. Uh, We looked at the nature of God. We looked at the attributes of God. Y'all remember all of that? It hasn't been that long. Um, But we we really focused in on the being of God, who He is. How do we understand His Trinitarian nature? How do we understand the unique attributes and then those that He shares with us? Well, tonight in this session, we're going to to focus more not, not on the being of God, but on the doing of God. And we're going to look at the works of God. Uh, some, some theologians will talk about these as being the acts of God, A-C-T-S. Uh, and there are more than what I'm going to talk about tonight. Like uh, the, the work of providence. Is that a word y'all are familiar with? The work of providence. Providence is one of those works of God. We talk about God being sovereign. And then, uh, okay, if he's sovereign, if he's in control of all things, well, how does that work? Well, providence... Divine providence is the word we use to describe God's working out of His decrees and His plans. So providence is part of the work of God. Miracles fall into that category of the works of God. But there are two that are bookend uh, works. Um, And obviously you can see on the slide behind me. um, Those two that I'm going to talk about tonight are God as creator and God as redeemer. So creation and redemption. And for us to get started kind of thinking of, and so you'll, you'll have some understanding of the reason why I've chosen these two. Um, I'm, I'm going to need some help from you guys. Um, so if you're readers, this is going to be helpful and easy. If you're not readers, this might be a little bit challenging, but I've even thrown in some, some movie references here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you Um, I'm going to quote for you the opening line of some stories that should be familiar to us. And I'm going to see if you can tell me where those lines come from. I've done this before. It's a lot of fun. I don't know that maybe anybody in this room was a part of that. It's been a long time. But here we go. First one is this. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Who knows the answer? That was Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. Great line, isn't it? Uh, if you've never read that book, ladies, please read it. Young men, please read it. it it's a wonderful work. It is uh, laugh out loud, loud funny at times, um, but it, it will help you understand your wife better, I hope. Um, all right, next one. This one should be easy. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Where's that one from? I'm not gonna. Ins- yeah, I'm not gonna insult you guys. Yeah, it's from The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien's work. Um, this one, if you're in our adult Sunday school class right now, you should recognize this one. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where there was a den, and I lay down there to sleep. 
And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. Yeah. Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Narnia, Witch, and the Wardrobe. There you go. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. All right. This one, this made me think about days gone by. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. Good night, moon. That's right. That was our uh, bedtime book. Uh, good memories of that one. Okay, here's another one. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan. Yeah, Peter Pan. For you movie buffs, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Anyone? Anyone? Star Wars. Yeah, of course. Um, where would we be without stories? Right? Good stories are so important to us as people, and, and really good stories if you, if you know um, some of the stuff that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien talked about. They would say that good stories do more than just entertain. They teach us something about life. They teach us something about our existence. They teach us something that is really important. They teach us big truths. And, and good stories can even prepare us for the hard things that we face in life. One pastor uh, by the name of Dan Taylor, speaking at a Desiring God conference years and years ago, he was talking about the importance of stories within the Christian tradition, and he said this, human beings are story-shaped creatures. We are born into stories, we're raised in stories, we live and die in stories. Whenever we have, a bit, have to answer a big question like, who am I, or why am I here, or what should I do, what happens to me when I die, whenever we need to answer those big questions, we tell a story. And that's true. And it's just innate as well. If you've got little boys, you know that a stick in the hand of a little boy becomes a sword, and all of a sudden, they are on a quest, and there's a dragon and a princess, right? Or a doll in the arms of a little girl she becomes a mother and she is now in her home and she is now taking, I mean, we just automatically just inject ourselves into stories. We're just story formed people. And we are this way because God made us this way. He made us to be people who love stories and in reality, he has placed us within the greatest story ever told. Not all stories are fictional. The greatest story ever told is the story of this world, and it's our story. It's a story that we are necessarily plunged into. And so starting in understanding of the works of God, to understand the story that we've been plunged into, we have to understand this work of creation. As the people of God, we have this well-rehearsed narrative preserved for us, passed down from one generation to the next in the Word of God. And that story begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Genesis. Jesus, yeah. Genesis 1. Um, I don't know. Did you say Genesis or Jesus? Yes. Okay. I, okay. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. And, and this is the entry into the story that helps us to make sense out of our world. But along with this, there's a lot of questions that we need to ask to understand creation, not just as the beginning of our story, but it helps us to understand God, right? This is, this is about the works of God. So what does the scripture teach us? What does creation teach us about the God we're studying? Well, let's ask some questions. First, what did God make? What did God make? And for those of you who've worked through catechisms with your children, you can answer that. What did God make? God made all things, right? Um, and, and we know this based on Genesis 1-1, that verse that we just looked at. We'll look at it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and God created the earth. As this story of God, this story that God is telling us of our reality as it unfolds, God makes clear to us very early on in the process that there was a time 
when our world did not exist. And yet, the story is told in such a way that when the beginning happened, God was already there. God himself has always been. Um, theologians throughout the age, uh, philosophers even, in, in having this discussion, have talked about God in this way. He, he is the creator that was uncreated. He is the maker who was unmade. God simply is. God has always been. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. Right? There's never been a time when God did not exist. There was a time when the universe did not exist. Not just the earth, but the universe did not exist. Even the space wherein the universe exists, it did not exist. We, we don't have language to understand that. We don't really have terminology that can conceptualize of a space that didn't exist but then come to being and how could God be there? How could there be something if there's not space for that something to it? We don't understand that. But God is not bound by any of the things that He has made. He's not bound by space. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by matter. So I hope that your brain is doing what mine usually does. Like, I don't understand that. I will, I will receive it, but I don't understand it. There was a time when none of those things existed, but God did exist. God is not dependent upon anything. Instead, everything is dependent upon Him. That's the story the Scriptures tell us. In the sequence of the creation story, there was a point when the universe was not, and then all of a sudden, the God who was already there created the heavens and the earth. And we use this phrase... Um, out of nothing. Have y'all heard that phrase? God created all things out of nothing. There's a, there's a Latin phrase behind that. Y'all know that one? Anybody want to? Ex nihilo. Right. Out of nothing. And there's people that have argued against that in so many different ways. Um, but the whole idea of that phrase is that God brought into being everything that exists out of nothing but His own power. The answer to the great question of how did life begin is that the God who stands outside of time and space created all that is and sustains all that is by the power that He possesses alone. And you can understand why when we're talking about the works of God, why this is so important. God created all things out of nothing. What, what, what can we throw into that category of all things? I always joke and say, you know what that word means in the Greek? It means all things. Um, I mean, just ponder that for a second. Time, the universe, all of the various solar systems within that universe, all of the galaxies that exist, all of the things that are going on in the space that we can't even reach except by you know, spaceships that are floating around taking pictures and sending them back to us that just mesmerize us. All of those things are the playground of God. Stars and galaxies and solar systems. But the Bible doesn't tell us all about that. It says that God places them into the heavens just like with a flick of his hand. Um, but the, the story of Scripture narrows down to the reality of what's happening on earth. So plants, animals, fish, birds of the air, creepy crawly things, all of that. And it culminates in the creation of mankind. God created all things out of Nothing. By the way, if you want to ponder that a little more by looking more in depth at Scripture, go to Job and read chapters 38 through 40. God just telling him, were you there when I did this? Were you there when I made the storehouse where I keep the snow? You know, just crazy stuff. But the Scriptures tell us a lot, not just Job 38 through 40. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. Now that gives us some clue. We're going to look a little bit more. But His Word, the Word of the Lord's 
brought the heavens into being. The breath of his mouth brought to, together all of the host of the heavens. And usually when you see that phrase, the host of the heavens, it's talking about two realities. It's talking about the physical realities that we know to be stars and planets and those kind of things. And then in some contexts, it's talking about the angelic beings. Hebrews 11, 13, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There's that ex nihilo concept. Acts 17, 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God made all things, and He made all things out of nothing. But let's get a little more specific. God not only made all of the things that we see and touch and taste and smell and study, but God created the spiritual universe. Realms and beings that we cannot see with our eyes. Nehemiah 9.6 You are the Lord, you alone, you have made the heavens the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. There's that concept of one is referring to the planetary bodies, and one is referring to angelic beings. God not only created the spiritual universe, God created mankind. God created Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the story of, uh, I like to tell it this way, in Genesis chapter 1, we get kind of an outline form. God did this on this day, and He did it this way, and He saw it and it was good, and He did this on this day, and it happened like He said, and He saw it and it was good, and you move on through that, and it's all these categories of things that God's made. Well, then in Genesis chapter 2, it slows down and it focuses in on the very last thing that God created. God moves from the creation of the cosmos to the creation of man and woman and the family and the cultural mandate. I mean, it's just a massive shift, right? And that's telling us something. As the narrative moves from the creation of everything to the creation of humanity, we learn that the purpose behind creation was not just to display something. It was to, the creation itself serves as the backdrop for the, the main story that's going to unfold. And that story is going to revolve around humanity. Genesis 2.18, we see a break in the language. It's, it's, uh, you don't see it as readily in the, uh, the English. You do see it in the Hebrew quite a bit more starkly. In Genesis 1, at the end of every day, God saw what He had made and He declares it good. Right? Well, in Genesis 2.18, we read this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. There's a demonstrative reduction of the good. Right? And you're thinking, well, what is it? What, what, what is not good? And he says, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And God is still speaking there. He, he's saying something that should grab our attention. Something is wrong in the midst of this creation. Or at least you could think about it this way. Something is not complete. God is not done. God still has more to do. Uh, and what He has to do here is to make the woman. And then bring the two of them together as the crowning moment of God's work of creation. When God created Adam and Eve, it was at that point that God declares it is very good, right? I mean, we, we know this because we've read it, but it's important for us to see it. God gave Adam and Eve this beautiful gift of each other. Um, I, I like to say this when I do weddings, that God created the Garden of Eden as um, like the wedding chapel. And then the bride is created and brought to the man, and God is present. God tells them, uh, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He gives them what we understand to be the cultural mandate. And then the Bible closes down that chapter by saying they were naked and they were not ashamed. And that's a beautiful picture of the creation of the family. Right? This is incredibly important to what we're trying to see in the Scriptures about God's creation. And we don't need to just 
act as though it's no big deal. It is an important part of this whole story. It's an important, like I said a minute ago, crowning achievement of the work of creation. But there are more questions for us to ask. So that's just, what did God make? But let's ask the question, um, who made all of these things? And that seems like it's redundant, but the scriptures give us something of a mystery with regard to who it was that was making all of these things. So let's try to answer this question. The Father is understood to have decreed the creation of the universe. He was the one who initiated the work of creation. The Holy Spirit was involved early on. Um, in, in Genesis chapter 1, in the very first few verses, after God creates the heavens and the earth, we learn that the earth was without form and it was void. There was darkness over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, but we also learn later on, uh, specifically in the New Testament, that the Son of God was also not only present, but active in the work of creation. Is that new to anyone here? Okay. So I, I want us to understand that Trinitarian understanding of creation. God the Father decrees creation and He initiates creation. The Holy Spirit is actively involved in creation. And the Scriptures tell us that the Son of God was the actual agent of creation. That's the language we tend to use. And here's some verses that help us to understand that. This is from John chapter 1 and verse 1. And this looks very similar to what we see in Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, right? But in this case, it's in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I always like to point out that the, the Word that we've just learned about in verse 1 becomes a He in verse 2. The Word was there in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? So the Word is a He. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then if you skip down, the next verses tell us about John the Baptist. And then when you get to verse 14 of John chapter 1, it tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking about Christ. It's talking about Jesus. This is one of the one of the four Christological passages in the New Testament that talk about the deity and the humanity of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1. The Son of God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Another one of those Christological passages, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And again, this is talking about Jesus. He is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and all things were created for Him. Jesus is not part of the created order, but rather He is responsible for bringing created order into being. Jesus is the agent of creation, the divine instrument by which the Godhead brought the material and immaterial universe into existence. That's what uh, Paul means in Colossians when he says, by Him all things were created. All things, again. All things. All that God made, He made by means of His Son. Now what does that mean for us today? What does it mean for us today. And there are plenty of people, uh, and there are plenty of teachers, and there are plenty of professors, and there are plenty of scientists and atheists and neighbors who would believe, and they look around the world and they think, they think that, you know what, matter is all that there is. Right? At the end of the day, all that matters is what we can see, what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can smell. And that's just, that's the reality they've embraced. Materialistic naturalism, or humanism if you want a simpler word, declares that the universe is self-existent, not created. Humanist looks to the material world, it looks to nature and says, from you are all things, and in you are all things, and all things return to you. 
And God's word says the very opposite of that. God's word says that there is something higher than the created order. Something, uh, someone who is responsible for it all. The world around us is amazing. The night sky is amazing. Those images from the Hubble telescope are amazing. But all of that is not ultimate. It is the stage for God's story. It came into being by the power of Jesus Christ. The heavens and the earth were created by Him. So let's think about that again. Right? A minute ago, we, we thought about what, what makes up the all things. Let's, let's think about this at Jesus as being the creator of everything. That sunset that makes you stand in silent awe. Or the starry night sky that you could stare at for hours on that camping trip with your buddies. Or the, those images that we see online of galaxies being formed out in space. This is the artwork of God, the scriptures tell us. This is the handiwork of God. Not an accident, but the purposeful display of God's creative order in His work of creation. The oceans that house an entire alien world, that we're still learning stuff, we're still finding new stuff. There's still parts of jungles uh, in South America, where we're still learning about new creatures and new insects and new plants and all, all of this stuff, this world that we don't fully understand, this world that frightens us. I don't know about you, but I don't have any desire to get out into the ocean and do anything but just listen to the waves roll in while I'm sitting under a, a, an umbrella reading a book. I don't want to go out there. I, there's things out there that will kill me. And I don't even know they're there. I don't want to go out there. It frightens me. And the Bible makes very clear that God created these things by the word of His power. The smell of freshly mown grass. The sight of a pasture covered in Texas blue bonnets. That bright blue Texas sky dotted with all those little clouds way off. This and every other image of natural beauty these things were created for Him and by Him. That's what the Scriptures tell us. There is even a world that we cannot see. The Scriptures make us aware of that as well. There is a visible world and an invisible world. In, in, in this particular um, statement, the material and the immaterial. And all these things came into being when He commanded them to. Angels were created by Him. Spiritual realms were created by Him. All of these things we owe to the creative power of Jesus. The heavens and the earth were made by Him. The spiritual world. Even the power structures that exist within those visible and invisible worlds. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's Colossians 1 again. All of that. No human king or queen. No... no no individual in, in a position of power, whether it's a governor or a senator or a mayor or anything, none of them take their position of power or prominence or influence or responsibility apart from God's work. All of them fall into God's sovereign purpose and plan. So Christ not only created all these things, but He also rules over all of these things. All things were created through Him and for Him. But how? That's the question. How did he do this? Um, we, we have some idea of what he's done. We have some idea of, of who has done this. But how did he do this? Anyone want to take a stab at that? How did he do this? By his word. Genesis 1, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Genesis 1, 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. Genesis 1, 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens also be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. 
That same phrase, that, that, that phraseology there, can be found in verse 11 of Genesis 1, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 29. Nine times in Genesis 1 we see that God speaks and His command is obeyed. Every day of creation is ushered in by the Word of God. And the rest of Scripture reverts back, just calls us back over and over and over again, reminding us that God spoke these things into existence by the Word of His power. The same phrase uh, that we see there, there's, a, there's a, uh, a kind of a parallel version of that in declaring not only that God spoke it, but that God spoke it into existence in a particular state. So, maybe we should just stop and God is so immensely powerful that His voice alone brings into existence things that were not. And the, and the, the Genesis account gives us kind of a, a two-fold process. There's, a, um, there's kind of a structure and then a filling of that structure. God creates these things and then He fills them. Right, so he creates the oceans and he fills them with life. He creates the land and he fills it with animals. He creates the air and he fills it with animals. And, and that's, this is just happening constantly, back and forth. If you slow down and you really think through Genesis 1 and 2, these things will blow your mind. And they're intended to do that. Trying to wrap our minds around the reality that the only barrier between you and nothingness is the voice of God. That Genesis 1 pattern of God said and it was so, we see it in this pattern of God made it and it was good. We see it in Genesis 1 verse 4. Um, God saw that the light was good. Genesis 1 verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered there and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25. In, in every instance, God's, God made what He made by the declaration of His power. God looked upon what He had made after He filled it, said it was good. And, and that helps us understand that, that not only does God create by the word of His power, but what God created was good. And that goodness is a reflection of the Creator Himself. Creation was fashioned by the word of God, it is sustained by the power of God, and it is the evidence of the goodness of God. In the beginning, all that God made was in perfect harmony. There was no brokenness, no sin, no death, no decay, no hurt, no pain. It was very good. Now, this is, this is Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 throws a big wrench into the whole plan, or at least from our perspective. But we know, knowing the end of the story, that that, that didn't take God by surprise. He had a purpose in that even. All right, last one of the questions. What, who, how, why, why did God make you in all things? Glory. For his own glory. God did not create the world because he was lonely. He did not create the world because he was bored. He did not create the world because he was starving for attention. He did not create it because there is no, for those reasons, because there's no lack in him. Creation doesn't in any way complete him, for you Jerry Maguire fans. It doesn't add to his godness. The creation of the universe was a totally free act of God that reveals his power and declares his glory. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Just the work of creation itself is intended to, to bring glory to God. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Okay, so the question is often asked, why would God, who is self-sustaining, why would God, who is perfectly holy, why would God create a world like the world that we live in? You probably asked that question at some point. You may have had a pastor or a preacher or a teacher try to answer that. Or maybe you looked online and you read what somebody had to say. Um, that's a big question. Why would God create the world? Knowing what He knows, being who He is, 
Why would God create? Now, the best answer that I have found over my years, I'm 45, I've been doing this since I was 21, so um, the best answer that I've found in that amount of time, which is just a tiny little bit of time, is the answer that is given by Jonathan Edwards. Um, his, if you've never tried to read Jonathan Edwards, then let me just prepare you. It's challenging. He, uh, he writes with an intellect that, I mean, he's not referred to as America's first and greatest theologian for no reason. He is brilliant, uh, was brilliant. But he also writes in an old, well, kind of a Middle English version that just makes it hard to follow. So I prefer to read Jonathan Edwards through the lens of biographers or, uh, in this particular case, John Piper. John Piper, there's a book, The End for Which, um, for which God Created the World, um, is, a, is a small little book, or actually it's a larger treatise that Jonathan Edwards did, and, and John Piper translated it for modern English, and he's published that book. It's called A Display of His Glory. It's a wonderful little book. We probably have it in our library. I have it in mine. I wish I had one to give away. But Jonathan Edwards, in that treatise, he tries to answer this question. And he ultimately comes back to that. He, he did it for his own glory, but he says it so much better than that. So here's what he says. I'll quote it. And this is, again, filtered down through others to make the modern English make sense. Why would such an infinitely good, perfect, and eternal being create? The ultimate reason that God creates is not to remedy some lack in himself, but to extend that perfect internal communication of the triune God's goodness and love. The universe is an explosion of God's glory. Perfect goodness, beauty, and love radiate from God and draw creatures to, an ever to ever increasingly share in the Godhead's joy and delight. The ultimate end of creation, then, is union in love between God and loving creatures. That's the end of the quote. There's a lot more to it. So God created all things. He created mankind at the pinnacle of that to both show and to share His glorious and eternal love. But as you know, we just looked at Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 throws the wrench into that whole thing and helps us understand how, are, or helps us ask the question, how are we going to enjoy and share in the glory and love and all that God has done? How are we going to do that when we are sinful beings who've been exiled from the presence of God? How's that going to happen? Well, that brings us to the second work. You were waiting on that, right? So we've looked a little bit at creation. Now let's look at this other massive work of God. Let's look at the work of redemption. Oh, I should put that quote up there for you. If you're on the email, you got it in your email. But here's the, the next part. So let's look at the work of redemption. You might want to take a stab at what the word redemption means. We don't use it that often. But... Redemption, um, it, has a, it has a parallel word that goes along with it, kind of two sides of the same coin, ransom. Redemption and ransom. Redemption is actually a, a financial term. It means um, deliverance or a, um, a, pay, a rescue by virtue of a payment price. So redemption is a price that is paid. And this concept of Redemption can be seen in hundreds of passages of Scripture throughout the Bible. In fact, after Genesis 3, redemption has this backstory. It is the backstory of how God is going to bring us back into relationship with Him. Even in Genesis 3, we see this whole concept of redemption play out, even though we don't see the word redemption play out. We see that uh, Adam and Eve should have died for their committing of sin. God told them, when you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die, but they don't die. And how does God cover the shame of their sin? Well, an animal died. And God made clothing for them out of an animal hide. And that's the first sacrifice. That the, the, the way in which God covered their shame, even in the very beginning, was through a sacrifice. So that whole idea of sacrifice gives us this concept of redemption. Uh, mankind is the problem in this story, not the solution to the story. When Genesis 3 rolls out and Adam and Eve 
sin against God, and they're barred from access to God. And then the very next generation, you, you've got Cain and Abel, what happens? One of them rises up, kills the other. I mean, they didn't like slowly get into sin. They just went full bore generation one, right? And then in Genesis 6, God saw that all the thoughts of mankind was only evil continually, right? I mean, it, it snowballed rapidly. And, and the whole story helps us understand that this good creation that God made is completely broken and marred and corrupted by the sin of man. Man is the problem. Man is not the solution. We, we don't save ourselves. But in Genesis 3, we learn that because of sin, God put this boundary in place between us and Him. And since God is the one who put the boundary in place, it only makes sense that God is going to be the one who helps us to understand um, how that boundary is going to be, how it's going to be removed. God is the one that's actually not even going to just, just make the plan, but God is the one who's actually going to do it because only God can restore the relationship corrupted by sin. We cannot redeem ourselves. So from that day on, from the, the day of the garden on, God is setting out to do this work of redemption, this work of delivering us, this work of rescuing us from the evil of our sins, and it's going to come by the payment of a ransom. It's going to come by a, at a cost. Um, so the work of redemption is just that, that big picture, that, that concept of God bringing us back into fellowship with Him uh, but let's look at the dawn of redemption. If you have a Bible or you want to just look at the slides, I want to look at Galatians 4 for a minute. There's, there's tons of passages we could look at. We don't have that much time. But Galatians chapter 4. I preached on Galatians, I don't know, two years ago? Pre preached through Galatians a couple years ago. <clears throat> and this idea of ransom and redeem, it shows up here. There's some other concepts that come in here that help us to understand this work of God in redemption. So we start in Genesis. God even makes a promise to Adam and Eve that He's going to bring a son of, a, a seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. We call that the Proto-Evangelium, the first little hint or instance of gospel or good news about how God's going to right the wrongs of our sin. And then the rest of the story unfolds, just telling us bits and pieces. The New Testament says we're looking at um, shadows. Um, but once, once Christ enters the world, here's the Apostle Paul's explanation of the dawn of redemption. This is Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law or subject to the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So this, there's a lot going on here. This is talking about the purpose of redemption. This is talking about the work of redemption. This is talking about uh, the, the function of it, the benefits of it. There's a lot here. We're not going to talk about all of those things. But um, I, I like that phrase, when the fullness of time had come, because it implies a long time of waiting, right? How many of y'all are very patient people? No hands went up. No hands went up. Waiting is hard to do. Um, I don't know how you celebrate the holidays. Um, but if you celebrate Christmas in any kind of a fashion where it implies waiting for gifts that are right there in front of you, I mean, that is torture, isn't it? We put these gifts in front of our children and they know there's something wonderful in there and you know, you got to wait. Waiting is so hard to do. Waiting is so hard to do. Um, but this verse, this phrase implies that there was a long time of waiting. It's a long time of anticipation. God was revealing things progressively, giving them little hints. This is what's going to come. He promises that the Messiah is going to come. He promises a new covenant that's going to come, and it's going to be very different than the old covenant. And, and the Scriptures say that when the fullness of time came, what did God give us? He sent forth His Son. 
when the fullness of time came, when the, when the dawning of redemption came, God sent forth His Son to us. In Jesus Christ, God sends His Son into the world, and this implies, and kind of go back to that whole Genesis, I mean, Genesis 1 concept of in the beginning God created, implies that God was already there. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, implies that when that time came, the Son already existed. He just sent Him in. He came into the world when the time was appointed for Him to come. He was there all along. He too was waiting, not just His people, but Jesus Himself was waiting until the day He was sent by the Father. And as challenging as that might be for us to get our minds around the reality of Jesus' pre-existence, which Jeff touched on a little bit, but the reality of Jesus' pre-existence is taken for granted in this text. It's, it's assumed by the Apostle Paul as he's writing this text. Those Christological passages help us understand that in the beginning was the Word, right? It, it, this concept of Jesus as the eternal Son of God who made His way into the world when God the Father sent Him. Right? Uh, he was born of a woman, the text tells us. Born under the law. Uh, the fact that He was born of a woman lets us know that He was fully man. I, I didn't say we were going to understand it all, but, but the Scriptures are declaring it to us. He was born of a woman, fully man. He was the Son of God, fully God. Born under the law. Jesus was subject to the law. The Scriptures even say that He learned obedience. Learned obedience to the law. He learned obedience to the Father under the law in that way. He lived under it um, so that when the time came in His life, He could take the curse of the law upon Himself and die to set us free. And that brings us to this next concept. Jesus came forth, but Jesus came for a purpose, and that purpose is at least twofold. He came to redeem us and He came to adopt us. Redeem us and adopt us. Going back to Galatians 4. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law for this purpose, or so that. It's a purpose clause. So that we might receive adoption. As sons. Now I'm going to try to wrap all that up in, in just a minute, but... Let's ask the question first. How did Jesus accomplish this? He came to redeem and He came to adopt. And there's a world of beauty and, and joy in the midst of those two things, right? The redemption and the adoption. How did He do it? Scriptures speak. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree or who hangs on a tree. So Christ took our curse, the curse of our sin upon Himself and died on the tree. Ephesians 1, 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Right? So this is talking about the death of Christ, obviously. The redemption price was the blood of Christ. And through that blood we have redemption, which is the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Why is that phrase important? That it's according to the riches of His grace. Grace means we didn't, we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It's a freely given gift. This is not, a, this is not just a, a, a concept that pastors create. This is, this is a reality, a truth that comes directly from Scripture. God is sitting on a storehouse of grace and kindness and love and mercy. And when the fullness of time came, He displayed that to us. We didn't deserve it. We still don't. But this is His purpose. Redemption was His plan. Hebrews 9, 12. He entered, this is about Christ, He entered once for all into the holy places not by the means of the blood of goats and calves. And that's a reference to the old covenant sacrificial system, which was a hint. It was a, 
uh, a shadow of the reality that was to come. And when the reality steps out, it's not another goat. It's a man who is also God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not by means of the blood of uh, goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I love the fact that that word eternal is there. What God begins, He completes in eternity. So what does this mean? The, the cost of our ransom wasn't cheap. The Son of God gave His life. It wasn't a few pennies that we scraped up when we moved the couch cushions, right? It wasn't even silver or gold. It was the precious blood of a lamb that was poured out to pay our ransom. And so if you think about redeem and ransom as two sides of the same coin, let's use an illustration here. Um, we use the word ransom often when we talk about someone being kidnapped, right? Someone is taken away from who they belong to. So in order to ransom them back, you pay or, or redeem them back, you pay a ransom price. So uh, in order for us to be redeemed back to God, the ransom price has to be paid. That's how those two things work together. And the price that had to be paid was the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. And the Bible says that he did this willingly. That's the picture the scriptures want us to see. That the blood of Christ is what covers the debt of our sin to redeem us. And Jesus gave his life willingly, knowing what it would cost him. So redemption refers to the process of us being delivered through payment. That payment is called a ransom, and he died in place of those who would believe. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 tells us, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So because of our sin, we were separated, but now because of what Christ has done and because of our faith in that, not because of our works, not because of our maturity, not because of our spiritual upstanding nature, not because we've earned it through some means of coming to church on a regular basis, but by faith, by trusting in Him, that ransom price is credited to our account. We are redeemed and He has secured for us an eternal redemption. But there's more to that. It's not just about redemption. There was another word. Jesus came to redeem us and then also to adopt us. Adoption is one of those beautiful pictures. I mean, adoption, just in general, as we understand it, it is, it is a picture, it's a display of grace. Right? And by God's grace, we have lots of families in this church that have adopted young boys or young girls and brought them into their family and made them their own and loved them and nurtured them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And that in itself is a, is a display of gospel grace. But let's think about it in terms of what God has done for us. If you're a believer in Christ, you have not only been redeemed by the ransom price that was paid, but you've been adopted into the family of God. The fact that we've been adopted by God means that we are a member of His divine household. And if you think about where we started, that's just a, that's just a wild amount of love and grace. We start as enemies of God, shaking our fist at God. We start out as beings who deserve the eternal wrath of God. Romans 3 says there's none good, not even one. When we open our mouth, it's like venom coming out of our mouths from the, you know, from the asp. Right? There's none who seek after God. I mean, it's just, there's, there's nothing that we possess to commend ourselves to God. We don't come to God with our trophies and say, hey, look, look what I've done for you. You should accept me on your team because of all of this. We come with empty hands. We come with hands stained by sin. And God not only says, I will accept you because I, but he tells us, I will accept you because I gave my son, my precious one and only son, the son in whom I love, I gave him for you. And not only will that wash away the stain of your sin, but it'll redeem you back into right relationship with me. And oh, by the way, I'm going to make you a full fledged son or daughter, and you're going to inherit what my son inherited. Co-heirs with Jesus is the language. So we can't just stop with redemption. We have to understand that 
concept of adoption. And, and look, God's family is rowdy, right? We're, we're, we're still on a journey. I mean, we're, I, I am still a very broken man who needs a lot of grace and a lot of kindness and a lot of spirit and a lot of the word and a lot of brothers and sisters speaking into my life. And, and you're part of that too. So don't just necessarily look down at your life and say, well, I don't feel like or I don't look like a child of God all the time. None of us do. That's not the concept. That's not the understanding that we have. These realities, these truths that the Scriptures are holding out to us are, are to help us grab a hold of what God has done for us and let that reality motivate us. Right? It motivates us to um, repent of our sins today. It motivates us to ask forgiveness of our spouse when we were cross with them today because we were just hangry or whatever the case might have been. It motivates us to... Um, where we haven't been loving our neighbors well, we go across the street and we try to love our neighbors well. It, it motivates us to set a better example for our children. And so gospel grace becomes a motivator. I think it should. The fact that we've been adopted into this family and, and we need to learn to live within that reality means that we need to keep reminding ourselves of the gospel. Have you ever heard the language of preach the gospel to yourself? It's real easy for us. We can understand some concepts of redemption and understand some gospel things, and then we fail. I can't tell you how many times people have come into my office and said, I just really don't think I'm a Christian because I still have sin in my life. And some of you are thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Well, well the fact that you have sin in your life doesn't mean you're not a Christian. right? I don't see anywhere in Scripture where the, the Bible tells us that uh, as Christians, you're automatically freed from all sin, and you will never struggle with it again. In fact, I think it's the opposite. Sin becomes more and more and more clear to us. The closer we get to Christ, or at least this has been my experience, the closer I get to Christ, and the more I know of the Scriptures, the more I know of my sin. And, and the more I know of my sin, the more it drives me back to understand my need of Christ and His redemption and his sacrifice and so I can preach the gospel to myself today and I don't beat myself up today because I failed and say well I must not be a Christian today no I, I remember who Christ is I remember what Christ has done for me I go back to that I kind of go back to the starting point and then I work my way forward in repentance and growth and maturity and obedience and, and adoption this concept of adoption this concept of gospel grace should motivate in us this desire to know God more, to love God more, to live in obedience to God, not in order that we can become children of God, but because we already are children of God. Does that make sense? We are to be obedient to our Father. We are to do the things that our Father has done, not so that we can become children, but because we are children of our Father. And look, God could have simply said, look, I paid your debts, now you can go do your thing. He didn't do that. He said, come on, I'm going to take you home with me. You're going to be part of my family. Forgiveness would have been enough. Removing the curse would have been enough. But God said, no, I'm going to give you a seat at my table. I'm going to let you slide up around me. Um, all the benefits of adoption are ours. So, Last one, benefits of redemption. And this is going back to Galatians again. He says this, And because you are now sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then you are an heir. An heir through God. We know what it means to be an heir, right? We are going to receive an inheritance. And the Scripture makes clear in other passages that we're going to be co-heirs with Christ. And what Christ is set to inherit, we will share. I don't fully know what that looks like. I'm looking forward to it, though. If you put your trust in Jesus, it's because God has done a work in you to redeem you from a life as a slave. He's adopted you as a son or a daughter. You're a beloved child. The child of God is now our identity. And, and we live being motivated by that. We stand in the confidence of that. When we fail, 
We don't automatically become not a child of God. We remember that we are, and we live in the reality of what He's declared for us. As Christians, we know that God has loved us. We know that He loved us because He sent His Son into the world to live for us and to die for us, to redeem us, and then to accomplish our redemption. We get to call God the Father, Abba. Right? You probably heard someone teach at some point that that's, a, that's like a little baby's word. It's like a little toddler's word for daddy. And I don't think it's, it's meant to diminish the, the value of God as father and creator, but it's meant to show the intimacy that now exists between the sons and daughters of God and the God who made us. So our, our future is secure because of Him. Oh, by the way, I'm going to end with this. So we started with the garden. Right? We started in creation. We started with Adam and Eve in the garden. There were angels present. Um, there were animals present. There were trees present. All this stuff was going on. And then when they sinned against God, God removed them from the garden. I use the word exiled them from the garden, exiled them from the presence of God. And do you remember what he put there to make sure they couldn't come back in? A flaming sword. Put an angel. That's why I said there were angels present. He put an angel in this place. Uh, I could talk about the concept of the Garden of Eden not being a, a physical place that could be plotted on a, you know, a map. I don't think it was. I think it was a spiritual place. Um, but he put this angel there with a flaming sword so that they could not get back in and there was a specific reason God didn't want them to get back in. Yeah. And the concept, okay, if y'all didn't hear that, so that they wouldn't come back in and eat from the fruit of the tree of life. And the concept is that if they were to do such, that they would remain in that state of uh, rebellion and disobedience. Right? So that's how the book begins. That's Genesis 3. So that's creation in a nutshell, the, the who, what, when, and why, and all that. And then redemption as this beautiful concept and what it creates in us and how it motivates us in our obedience to the Lord. But at the end, guess what the Bible tells us we're now going to have access to? This is still keying off of that whole idea of us receiving an inheritance um, through the redemption and adoption. In Revelation 22, we read this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Here's the point. Here's the picture, right? We'll get to it in you know, a couple months. But here's the picture we're going to get access to the tree of life again. And live forever in that state as a son or daughter of God because God's work of cre creation was completed and God's work of redemption will also be completed. That's the story of God's work in the world. How it began, how it's still unfolding, and if you're a Christian, if your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that's, that's your story. Right? So any questions? I'm sure there's plenty. I've given you three minutes to ask questions. Sorry, it's a long lesson. Any questions? All right, well, let me pray for us. Kids will be coming in here in a minute. Father God, thank you for the scriptures that reveal all of these things to us and so much more. We've just scratched the surface of this and... Father, where things that have been said are unclear or maybe just me stumbling through my words, Father, I pray that you'd help us to forget those things and remember the truth. Where, where truths were spoken tonight that we've never heard before, Lord, I pray that those things would stick and that they would form our understanding of what you have done and who you are and how you've 
placed us in this world with purpose. And those things that we need to hear about ourselves as Christians who stumble and fall but get motivated again to remember the gospel and let it propel us forward in repentance and faith, Lord, I pray that those things would stick and give us peace. And I pray that it would give us great hope knowing that your work of redemption is an ongoing work. And we take part in that, not just as recipients of that, but as ambassadors for the gospel message to see the work of redemption happen through the ministry of the word that we get to be a part of. And we long for that day when redemption is completed in the consummation of all things, when all things are brought to that perfect point of eternal state, and we get to take part in that. So Lord, let us be motivated and encouraged and, uh, and helped along as we understand our identity as your children living in this creation as part of your redemption and longing for the day when it will be completed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.